You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the American Bar Association's annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois. We're here to cover this event and its highlights for you, our listeners. And joining me now, I have two guests. I have Miss Bobby Liebenberg and I have uh, Miss Stephanie uh, Scharf. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. So, you know, before we get started, I just want to learn a little bit more about you. So I'm just going to ask where you work and what do you do? So let's start with Stephanie. I am a founding partner of Sharf Banks Marmer, which is the largest women-owned law firm in this Chicago region, and I personally concentrate on complex litigation. Okay, great. And uh, Bobby? I'm a partner at Fine Kaplan & Black in Philadelphia. It's an antitrust boutique nationally recognized, and I concentrate my practice in uh, and complex commercial litigation, but particularly antitrust cases. Okay, fantastic. Well, the reason I brought you on is I wanted to talk about a study that you did uh, for the benefit of the ABA Commission on Women in the Profession. And so uh, let's, let's learn a little bit about that. What's the study called and how did it get started? The study is called First Chairs at Trial, More Women Need Seats at the Table. And it actually got started based on some personal experiences that Bobby and I had sitting in courtrooms day after day, month after month, year after year, and realizing there were very, very few women lawyers in the lead on cases, although in our experiences, women have been practicing law in robust numbers for over 30 years. So we said, we don't get it. What's going on here? Well, let's start with some of those statistics. I think that's a great ground level to start. Well, Stephanie, I'll share with us some of the statistics uh, that, that are the foundation for the study. Well, I suppose the leading statistics are that although women make up roughly 40% of the legal profession. Okay. And is that all ages, um, all ages of attorney, or is that just uh, like the recent classes? No. Recent classes actually consist of 45 or 50% female. Okay. So if you look at women who, if you look at lawyers who have been practicing less than 20 years, you probably have close to 50%. Okay. But looking across all age groups, including the most senior groups, which are obviously heavily dominated by men, overall, all age groups across the country, we're probably talking about 40% women in the legal profession. Okay. And it's been that way for quite a while, we think. It's edged up that way. And yet, when you go into court, something like only 25% of the lead lawyers, the lawyers who are designated as trial lawyers, are women. And in certain types of cases, it's even less. So if you look at contract, private contract disputes or private tort disputes like product liability or toxic tort cases, many fewer women are appearing. Only about 15% or 18% of those cases are led by women. Okay. Okay. So now we started with just trial attorneys in general. So you're seeing 25% of all trial attorneys are women, 75% are men. And then you've further broken it down by different, uh, I guess not even, I wouldn't be a specialty, but different types of dispute uh, at trial. And so what is the one with the largest gap that you can think of? Well, one of the largest gaps happens to be in the class action area, okay, uh, which were overwhelmingly dominated by male lead counsel. 
87% of the attorneys appearing as lead counsel were men, the largest gap in any part of our study. Okay, wow, that is a, a very significant gap. It's a significant gap um, as it is for other areas, including, as I mentioned, private parties. And, and really the question becomes, who should be in the courtroom? Do we want our lawyers to represent the communities in which they practice, the juries in which they practice in front of, and frankly, in many communities, the judges as well, because there are typically larger numbers of women judges in most urban communities, and that's where this study was then there are lead lawyers who are women in the courtroom. So there's a real disconnect between the availability of women lawyers to be talented and take the lead versus what's really happening. Okay, well, you get an argument here. I mean, I'm kind of a feminist. I have a, a mother uh, who works as a nurse, and my uh, my girlfriend, she's also an attorney, and so, you know, I definitely want them to have a fair representation in the workforce. So uh, let's get but into But it also makes a real difference in terms of the overall... Uh, stature of the lawyer. You know, why did we look at this? Because there is this connection between who is the lead trial lawyer and where are they in terms of how they're doing in their firm, both in terms of leadership and in terms of compensation. Okay. So this is not a study just in a vacuum. Gotcha. I gotcha. So, well, we've talked about some of the uh, got some some of the stats here. So let's get into some of the reasons why. Um, you know, obviously, you know, things are beginning to change, but um, you're looking back and these are some pretty, pretty indicative statistics that you're sharing with us. Um, what are some of the reasons why you think, uh, you know, women are not taking more on as this role or what, what's holding them out or what's the cause? I think that the notion that women are not taking this on kind of implies a process that doesn't exist. Okay. I think there are plenty of women willing to step up and take on lead roles. But I think there are a lot of structural factors that get in the way. Such as? So, and the commission has done a lot of research around these. So there are these implicit and unconscious biases that affect the ability of women to get assignments, good evaluations, partnership. And so these implicit biases, and they affect women even in the courtroom as demonstrated in our study, is one factor that may affect the ability of women to get into to get the experience and then get into the um, the position to become a lead trial lawyer. So you, you, you're obviously not going to graduate from law school and become a lead trial lawyer. You need to get the experience and you need to get the type of cases that are going to get you into court. So we know, for example, that many times male sponsors, male partners will often pick male protégés that they will then help to groom to become their assistant, their, their second chair, and then ultimately they'll move on to be first chair. And this impacts uh, women, you know, whether or not someone will sponsor them, whether they're going to be picked for these types of cases, these important cases. And women have to be active as well. They can't assume that the process or the procedures in a firm or in their place of employment will carry them along. They've got to raise their hand. They've got to speak up. They've got to say more than once, I want to be in a position to do this. I want to take more responsibility. I want to be in the lead. And if you say it 10 times, it's not too many because people have to understand you're, you're serious and this is what you want to do. I want to add on to what Stephanie just said because she mentioned structural issues that may impact women. And you see that particularly in law firms. What was so interesting about our study is if you looked how women fared when they were in the government 
and they did much better. So the highest percentage of women in terms of lead counsel was where they were representing, they were working for the government representing a state, a municipal, municipality, et cetera. So it was a very, very interesting statistics. And one of the um, really tips that comes out of this study is that for many women, if they actually want to be a trial lawyer, they may want to think about a career trajectory that includes being in some type of government attorney position. Well, let me ask you some of those statistics as well. So uh, women going into trial work, say, for district attorney's office, uh, you know, uh, prosecutor, defense, um, what, are the, what are some of the numbers of representation there? Well, if you represent the U.S. government, the U.S. government lawyers, uh, roughly 31% of them are women. Uh, roughly 32% of state lawyers are women, and roughly 40% of lawyers for cities and municipalities are women. And by way of contrast, big contrast, only 20% of all lead counsel who represent businesses are women. So private businesses are overwhelmingly represented by men in the lead. Okay, so let's talk about the structural differences. And so, you know, obviously, I, I think we're, kind of, we're familiar with some of the different company models and, and law firm models, but, uh, but specifically when we look at them compared to a government model, what's different? How, and how is that affecting women? Like what, what, what's the, and I guess what's the determining factor that, that causes these differentials in numbers? Well, I think in government, you have more of a lockstep type of movement. And I think that there are more, more uh, structures in place in terms of making sure that you're getting equal access to the types of cases. So again, another interesting statistic that came out of our survey was that if you looked at criminal cases, there was a really wide divide. So in criminal cases, 66% of lead counsel that represented the defendant were men, but in contrast, 69% representing the prosecution were women. Run that by me one more time. I, that, I think it's really interesting. So 69% of the women um, were lead trial counsel in criminal cases appearing for the government. So they were on the prosecution side, but they weren't on the defense side representing the individual defendant, okay, right? Gotcha. But on the converse, when you had the who was look, who was representing the individual defendant in a criminal case, 66% were men. Okay, I got you. Wow. Okay. So it's a mirror image, basically. Yeah. I have another one. Uh, clients. So um, you know, I, and, and I draw the line with like doctors. You know, like depending on what I'm going in for a check, I might prefer a female or or a male, depending on what kind of yeah. thing that I'm doing, just for comfort, personal comfort, not necessarily bias one way or the other on skill. It's just I feel comfortable sharing that side of me with one gender versus another. And so are, are you seeing perhaps some bias, whether it's, uh, you know, harmful met bias or just sort of, uh, sort of a, you know, just kind of a comfort based bias between male and females with the, the attorneys that they choose? It's a great question, Lawrence, and it is actually answered in our study um, where we talk about some research that shows that, in fact, there are some instances where clients say that they would prefer to have a male instead of a female as first chair trial lawyer. And that, again, raises the issue of structural. You know, how is the firm then going to respond gotcha. in terms of they want to make sure that their client is satisfied, but at the same time, they want to make sure that their women are getting the opportunity to take on these cases. Part of what is important, I think, is something that Stephanie touched upon, and again is reflected in the research in the study. Almost 50% in many jurisdictions, 50% of juries are women. 
And therefore, it makes not only good sense to have women because they have the substantive skill to be able to do this, but they relate well with the jury. We know also from research cited in the study that um, many jurors find women lawyers to be much more credible. You know, and I've certainly heard that in family law practices. I, one practice, and um, I'm not going to get into commentary whether this is a good idea or a bad idea, but uh, I've heard that, you know, if you have a male client in a family law matter, it's a, uh, some firms recommend a female attorney because it plays better. And then the flip side, when it's a female attorney, you or I'm sorry, a female client, you have a male client. So I've heard that, and I don't know if that kind of plays into uh, what you're talking about. or. Well, I, I think Bobby and I share the view that, whether you're male or female, you can be a great lawyer. Yes, and what our I share fo- your view on that as well. And what our focus is making sure that all of the talented women in the legal profession get the chance to show they are a great lawyer and to be in the lead as great lawyers. Well, great. No, I'm just, Ed, this is wonderful. You're, you're enlightening me with the study, and that's uh, uh, wonderfully well thought out. So just uh, I just want to do one quick follow-up on the criminal part of it. Sure. Some of the, uh, the the gender biases by the clients, do you think, I mean, in the last statistics I read, most criminal defendants happen to be male. And so do, do you think that that plays uh, into the selection of their attorney? Well, it's hard to tell. It's a kind of chicken and egg effect. I actually have represented okay. uh, criminals in, fe- uh, in felony cases because I work with my husband, who is a criminal defense attorney on some cases. And my experience is that criminal defendants appreciate the opportunity to be represented by a woman lawyer. The chicken and egg problem is there are very few women in private practice who specialize in criminal defense. And it's hard to know why, but it's certainly the case that if you have a zest for criminal law, you're much better off starting off in a government job because that's where you'll get your chances to try cases. So I also represent uh, individual criminal defendants. Antitrust uh, is not only a civil statute, but it also has a criminal component to it. And so I have represented individual defendants. So there are places, not only in smaller uh, solo firms, where you can get criminal experience because many large firms have antitrust practices as well as antitrust boutiques. So I think that there are many opportunities where women can get this experience uh, if, in fact, they want to uh, represent individual criminal defendants. Sometimes we think part of the explanation may be that many times with criminal defendants, um, the representation is by uh, individuals in small firms, and there are fewer probably women who are, who are just taking that, those types of cases on. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's transition into solutions, because I think that's an important part of why we're here today. And so the study has got some amazing information in it. And, uh, you know, through that, you must have come up with some ideas on how we can address this and make sure that everybody's getting a fair shot at the practice of law and that we're developing talent everywhere, you know, to, to get the most effective uh, source of justice for everybody. And so what were some of the ideas that you came up with that we can help solve this problem? So we looked at a wide array of all the stakeholders as to how they could make sure that women are getting the experience to become first chair trial lawyers. So it starts with law schools, law firms, what judges can do, what clients can do, and even what bar associations can do. And as as Stephanie mentioned before, what can individual women lawyers do? So these are all mentioned in terms of concrete steps and strategies that are set forth in the study. One of the uh, key areas we believe that will be very helpful 
to make sure that women are um, getting the experience. I'm going to focus on what judges can do and also what clients can do. So many judges have the opportunity. They have a discretionary appointment powers, and they have the ability to appoint women uh, as lead counsel in multi-district litigation class actions, on the executive committee on those class actions, and other discretionary appointments, like being on the disciplinary committee, which will give a woman lawyer great visibility and will increase her stature and profile both within her firm and outside of the firm. So we think that this is an important step. We have been working with the National Association of Women Judges um, with respect to how we can partner so that uh, judges uh, can be aware of the role they can play with respect to these discretionary appointment powers, and then working with the individual women to make sure that they ask these judges for these types of appointments. And, and then how about the American Bar Association? How can it help? Well, the American Bar Association has been very helpful on a number of initiatives. The Commission on Women is quite proactive in advancing women in the it law. It has quite a history, too, as we were talking about before. Yes. So uh, uh, I think this is a good segue before you uh, complete your question. Who was the first chair of the commission? So the first chair of the ABA Commission on Women in the Profession was Hillary Clinton um, in 1986. And she uh, performed one of the first studies on the status of women in the profession. Um, and she uh, it was a very comprehensive study. And she observed that despite the fact that women would be graduating at the same or near the same rate as men, that would not necessarily guarantee that they would advance and succeed at the same rate as their male colleagues. And in fact, her observations were quite prescient because as we've just talked, while women have been graduating from law school for over the last 30 years in nearly the same rates as men, if you look at the number of women equity partners, it's 17%, and it has been at that number for about eight years. And, and uh, Steph, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I wanted to share that uh, information, but uh, you were answering the commission, uh, how the, uh, the ABA has been very, very helpful with this. And so you've got the commission and it's been doing this for a while and you've got studies. So what are some of the other ways that the ABA has been helpful? Well, there are so many ways it's hard to list them all. Um, one way, which is a little bit close to home, are a series of publications that the commission and Laurel Bellows uh, Gender Equity Task Force did over the past couple of years. Bobby and I had the opportunity to co-write uh, a pamphlet called Power of the Purse. And this leads back to one of That's your... That's a very catchy title. Yeah. This leads back... We'll give Bobby it's the our credit for day. the title. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and this really leads back to um, one issue that we take to heart, and that is clients have power through their purses of influencing who represents them. And we would encourage clients and we encourage lawyers and firms to speak with clients about what kind of representation clients want and what kind of diversity clients want in the lawyers who represent them and how that can best be achieved. And we think that partnerships between clients and firms and lawyers can be very effective, powerful forces for change. Okay. And we've addressed uh, judges, how judges can help, how women lawyers can help themselves, um, you know, through asking for these appointments. And we've talked about bar associations with the American Bar Association and clients. But uh, how about law schools? It seems like a good place to start. That's where your education begins. So how about law schools? Did you have ideas for them? 
Sure. We think that law schools need to make sure that they offer the types of training that are going to give people the experience to, um, so that they can pursue a career in trial advocacy. And many, most law schools actually have those types of programs. But uh, it is important to make sure that women are, uh, are also taking advantage of these opportunities. Some women um, may think that they won't make good trial lawyers. And part of it is just to have the opportunity to see that you can do it. And it's really uh, a tremendous amount of fun to, to be in a trial. Hard work, but a lot, it can be fun as well. And law schools can offer resources and platforms for law student associations that advance the goals we're talking about. For example, there's a wonderful national organization, Ms. JD, that directs itself to law students and young lawyers. And the more support they can get from law schools, the more powerful an impact they will have and ultimately benefit women graduates of law schools. That's fantastic. Well, we've uh, we've reached the end of our time today, but I want to thank both of you for joining us. This is wonderful, the statistics. And, and I encourage everybody, is this study available online for people to it look is. at? It is. If you go to the ABA and go to the website and then uh, plug in Commission on Women in the Profession, you can get a free... A copy of this study, which you can download. I love it. It's uh, I'm a big statistics uh, fan. It's loaded with statistics, which I'm a big fan of, and uh, I like that. And then you start your conclusions from there, and and uh, it's wonderful. So, and also I had another question for you. Uh, our listeners, if they want to get a hold of you, learn a little bit more about what you've been talking about today, perhaps address some of the things coming out in your study. How can they reach you? So I'm available. You can look me up at rliebenberg at finekaplan.com, or just go to finekaplan or Google Roberta Liebenberg. And Stephanie? I would say Google Stephanie Scharf. And in the report, our email addresses and contact information is right there. And we'd be happy to receive calls about information or anything else we can do to help. Excellent. Well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.